Hey, what's up, everyone? It's Kendall from the Recording Lounge Podcast, and on today's episode, we're talking about the Brightness War. Now, what do I mean when I say the Brightness War? Well, we have a tendency in the studio world to brighten things up, and in fact, we almost have to brighten things up. It's one of the most common notes that I give engineers who send me mixes to check or from interns or from assistants or people I'm mentoring, that their mixes end up too fat and too dark. And it's partly uh, an issue of monitoring, but another part of it is a lot more complicated than that. Now, I want to be very clear. I'm not saying that your mixes should be bright or that they have to be bright. You can make mixes however you want. And depending on the genre, depending on the type of music, it's the wrong call to make those mixes bright, right? Like there are certain things that need to be darker and fatter. But undeniably, it's very common to have to brighten things up to get them to sound how we need them to sound and how we've come to expect them to sound. Now, I should also say, I like bright mixes and dark mixes. They're both totally valid. Again, depends on the style, depends on the artist, depends on the current trends of the day. You know, Dave Pensado has said that you can tell what year a song was mixed based on the top end. Uh, you know, so don't take this episode to mean that you have to add a bunch of top end or that that's what good mixes do or that's what pro mixes do. However, I'm saying it's common to have to do that. And sometimes when you watch pro mixers mix, whether it's CLA or Eric Valentine, you'll be a little bit surprised by how much top end they have to add to things. Sometimes they crank the top end on a Poltec or on the SSL console or on a plug-in. They're cranking the top end 10 dB on a piano or on a vocal or on a, you know, uh, an acoustic guitar or an electric guitar. It just really depends. So we're going to look at this in three parts. First thing, we're going to talk about why our mix is so bright now. Next, we're going to talk about why adding all that brightness feels counterintuitive to us. And finally, we're going to look at ways that you can get brighter mixes that aren't harsh, that accomplish what a modern mix often needs to be uh, without encountering other problems. So part one, why are mixes today so bright? There's a couple reasons why I think modern mixes are so bright, and I really want to clarify that there's a difference between thin and bright. They're not the same thing, but often it's a combination of both. But we're going to talk about that more in a bit. So the first reason, this one's pretty simple. It's that bright, clear, articulate, in-your-face, better-than-real-life clarity in a mix is kind of just the sound of modern music. Over time, pop music especially has just gotten brighter and more like super real, and it's just part of the sound. I can't really say a whole lot more than that on that front because that's just what happens, right? It's like things have evolved to sound that way because that's what people want. In the same way that certain types of films have evolved over time to have a certain grit or a certain type of contrast or a certain type of color grading that happens. And it's just kind of expected that certain films look a certain way. Like horror films have a certain certain look and superhero films have a certain look. You know, it's like... Some of it's out of our hands. It's just part of the genre now. Number two is arrangement. I mean, it's one of the biggest reasons why is that we have to fit a bunch of layers. And so that requires us to make things smaller, make things brighter, make things take up less space. Okay, that's one of the primary reasons why we have to do this, because we're trying to fit 
drums and guitars and keys and vocals and backing vocals and all this stuff. And the only way to fit all of those individual pieces together is to make each thing smaller. And how do we make things smaller? We remove low end, uh, we remove low mid mud, we uh, accentuate mid range and highs and high mids and try to really only put out the parts that our, our ears are most sensitive to, which are generally highs and high mids. We hear it in the mix, but it doesn't take up a lot of space. Number three is translation to mediocre systems that lack bass definition. So this one's really fascinating because there's a weird phenomenon that's happened in the music industry. For years and years, speaker systems were really, really inferior. They were dull, they were unclear, not very articulate. But as they improved, people started hearing much more high-frequency detail in these mixes that they knew and loved. And when I say people, I mean like musicians and audio engineers mostly. Those people heard that sound and then tried to match it. But then speaker systems improved again, and people realized that mixes were even brighter than they thought. And then they tried to match that. And, and the cycle kind of continued. So over the years, many old recordings have been remastered to sound better on these brighter new systems that have way more fidelity. And they've actually had to kind of darken some of them because they were so bright. You know, they were mixed in a different time when they didn't realize how bright they really were. Now, another reason why things are so bright is because of the loudness war. Now, obviously, if you've been around audio for a while, you should be familiar with what the loudness war is. It's basically the idea and the trend that mixes have gotten louder and louder and louder in terms of RMS level, in terms of how much they've been limited in mastering. And over the last 30 years, mixes have gotten insanely loud. I mean, it's very common for finished mixes to be negative seven, negative eight, negative six RMS. Like, it's pretty wild. And it's something that I'm really, really despise. There's really no point to it anymore, especially that streaming services are starting to move to sort of a regulated amount of loudness where, you know, there's a set reference level. Many of them are using negative 14 and everything is level matched to that. And they're doing that because the user, the listener, is getting annoyed that different songs are different volumes, right? And so it just makes sense to have the website or app do it rather than us have to do it. However, what that means is we don't gain anything by making our mixes louder because it's just going to be turned down to negative 14. So thankfully, I think that's something that will eventually go away I think people will not feel the need to crush their mixes so much and we'll get back to music that's a bit more dynamic and a bit more punchy and not have clients begging us to make mixes at negative six so they can compete with other, you know, whatevers. Anyway, my point is, if you want your mix to sound loud, you kind of have to exploit the nature of human hearing. Our ears are more sensitive to high mids and highs. So if you make mixes brighter and more aggressive in the high mids, it will have more apparent loudness. So two mixes can have the same loudness measurement, but sound vastly different from each other based on their tonality and based on their arrangement. So not only does this apply to the mix as a whole, it also applies to individual elements in your mix. So if you have some track in your mix that's quiet, but you want it to be a little bit more audible, a lot of times the way that we do that is make it brighter. 
because it fools the ear into thinking that it's louder than it really is. This ties back to the last one we talked about, about consumer playback systems. If things are brighter, they sound louder than they really are, which means a playback system doesn't really have to work as hard. You know, it's much harder for an amplifier or a playback system to reproduce low end than it is to produce treble. So having loud, bright mixes actually pushes a small system less and you kind of get free loudness out of the deal. I mean, this is a really deep topic that we could talk about for episodes upon episodes, but you get the general idea. Number five is consumer listening levels. You know, consumers rarely listen to music as loud as we think they do. In our minds, we might think of the average music listener as the dude rolling by in his car at 2 a.m. with cranked sub bass. But in reality, most people listen to music at conversation level, in the background, you know, if not pretty quiet. Maybe at a party or something, they're listening loud, or if they go to a club or something, like they're listening loud. But for the most part, I think most casual music listeners don't really listen to music that loudly. So if we make our mixes too dark or too fat, they might have to turn their systems up too loud. And most people want to be able to, like, turn on their phone or turn on their, you know, Sono system or turn on their computer or whatever and just press play and it sound audible and clear and not have to crank it up to hear clarity. And that's one of the things is that, you know, we have a nonlinearity to our ears as well. The equal loudness curve, Fletcher-Munson curve, as some people would call it, talks about essentially how our ears are nonlinear and at quiet levels, we're unable to hear as much low end and top end things sound more mid-rangey so if our mixes are too dark and too fat you know we'll hear low end but we won't really hear any clarity at low volume so we'll have to turn up our speakers high enough so that we can hear that clarity and it's unfortunate but that's just how our ears are we can't change that right so i think some of this has evolved from that as well number six uh gear has changed so this one's a little bit related to some of the ones we talked about earlier, but a, a lot of people, in my opinion, wrongfully assume that a lot of vintage gear is warm or dark or dull. And in fact, a lot of vintage gear is pretty bright. I mean, if you've ever heard an original Fender Bassman or an old Telecaster, an old Strat, a real deal Neumann 47, like these things are not as dark as people think they are. And... What has changed big time is recording technology. So, you know, back in the day, we had older styles of tape recording, we had vinyl releases, and we had inferior playback systems. But today, one of the biggest things that has changed drastically is our recording technology and our playback technology and our release technology. So we're recording digitally, we're releasing digitally, and we're listening on like modern full fidelity systems. And that's a huge change. But like so much gear today is copied or modeled after the old gear. And I know people with vintage instruments and I've recorded plenty of vintage instruments. I own some vintage microphones and some vintage instruments and they're not like dark and dull like people seem to think they are in their mind. I, I, I don't really know where that comes from. I, I think the main thing is people hear it on a recording and they think, oh, that cool old, like, Temptations bass tone, right? Like, they hear that sound and think that's an old P bass, or that's a... And it's like, not necessarily. That's an old recording of a P bass that was new back then. You know what I mean? So it, it's, it's a different thing. Another part of this is that, like, a vintage mic now 
is a different sound than it used to be, right? Its components have aged. The capsule has long had buildup of corrosion and dust and moisture. Resistors have drifted. The tube has probably lost some gain and gained some noise. But we will still call that like the holy grail and we'll say, oh, that's that's what the mic sounds like. It's like, well, not necessarily. Like when those mics were most famously used on those classic records, they were brand new. And so they probably were even brighter back then, right? Like my whole point of bringing up this is that gear is totally different now. Like whether we're cloning stuff or not, like everything is different about how we record. Unless you're recording on vintage tape machines and releasing only on vinyl, everything is so much different. So like it's so ridiculous to me when companies keep trying to make clones of old stuff. Like, we really need to make gear that works for today. There's a handful of companies out there that I really respect that are making, you know, new microphones, not clones of old stuff. Like, maybe inspired by old stuff, but essentially that today. You know what I mean? Because we have to have stuff that sounds good today, not based on, you know, what recording technology or playback technology we had 60 years ago. Like, in my opinion, we should be able to plug in a high-quality microphone today into digital and pretty much be able to get a finished sound relatively easily. But sadly, a lot of companies don't view it that way. They view it as, hey, let's make another U47 clone. Let's make another clone of Klon. Let's make another clone of a vintage snare drum. Let's make another clone of a... You know what I mean? It's like, man, it's really not like try to innovate for today. You know what I mean? We're we're mostly recording on digital. We're mostly releasing on digital. Test it with modern systems of recording and releasing and playback. Right. That's what we need to be doing. Now, thankfully, I think more and more gear companies have gotten into that and they're testing it on in great studios and they're listening, doing listening tests and they're involving engineers in that process where they're sending microphones to these engineers and saying, try this out. Tell me what you think of it. And a lot of engineers are giving good feedback. And I think that's really important for gear companies to do because I've gotten a handful of mics from companies over the years to have me try out, and so many of them I didn't like, and I sent a lot of them back. And I was like, I know you're offering this to me for free so that I can like make a promo video for you, but I don't really like the mic, so I'm going to send it back. There are very few companies that I would sort of go to bat for and say, like, these people I believe in, their products, and I would stand by them almost anything they put out because... They really know what they're doing. There are very few companies. Like, I'm pretty picky about gear, and I really want to get stuff that works for me. I don't care if it's a clone. I don't care if it's $10,000 or $1,000 or $200. I just want it to work. Anyway, and the last one, and this is probably just a small part of the equation, but I do think it's fascinating. I think that pro mixers, the big-name mixers that we sort of idolize and aspire to be like, I think that they're, they're aging. And their ears are gradually getting a little bit of hearing loss. And so most, I mean, most of the big name engineers and mixers that we know and love are over the age of 40. Some of them are much older. They've been doing this since their late teens. There's bound to be a little bit of hearing loss going on, even if just 5%, 10%. Like, I know they probably take care of their ears, but it does make you wonder, like, since many of us learn by emulating the mixes of these pros and those pros are getting older are we emulating 
partly, to some small degree, the sound of a mix made by somebody with some hearing loss. Hearing loss first occurs in the high mids and highs, so there may be some weight to this. I, I, I don't think it's the biggest part of this. Uh, that's why I put it at the end. I think it's just a small part of it, but if you hear some mixes from CLA or Michael Brower or any of these big-name mixers, like they're pretty bright, and you got to wonder if a small part of that is because... They're getting older, losing just a little bit of their hearing, and they're making mixes brighter. And then we emulate that. I don't know. Something to ponder. So moving on to part two, why does all of this brightness feel so counterintuitive? A lot of times when we're working on mixes and we're learning to get better and we're trying to make our mixes sound more like the pros, we might find we have to add quite a bit of top into things. And there's a weird pushback that happens in our mind. And I'm trying to analyze a little bit of where that comes from and why it feels counterintuitive. Why does our brain say, this, this isn't right? So number one is the psychology of, I shouldn't have to do that. This is one of the biggest things, I think, holding people back from adding brightness or cutting a bunch of low end or low mids. I've talked about this before on the show, but it's true. Like the fear of doing X, Y, Z will hold people back from greatness. They think to themselves like, well, that seems like a lot of top end or that seems like a whole lot of compression or may I shouldn't have to add all that. Right. Like that seems like way too much. And there's a small part of us that says, you know, I think internally, like if I had to do that, then I'm admitting that I had a crappy recording that was not done well. When in fact, many of the factors that we've discussed have nothing to do with the quality of the recording. A lot of it's just how our ears perceive brightness, how trends have changed over the years, how listening systems have changed, you know, the clarity and separation required to get a bunch of tracks to fit together. Like, that's not really anything to do with your skill. A lot of it is just the nature of the beast. So the psychology of I shouldn't have to do that is very powerful, right? Our brains say like, oh, it's a failure if we do that. And again, I'm always preaching about the source is king, the source is king. In a perfect world, we shouldn't have to do that. I get it. It would be so great if we could just put up a mic and hit record and it fits in the mix perfectly. Like, that's what I strive to do. That's what I always am striving to do is record the sound that I want so that I don't have to do a lot of that. But at the same time, I don't know how many microphones could sell well if they added 15 dB of brightness on something. It would be such a specific sound that might only work for one out of 10 things, but the other time people would just say it sounds terrible. You know, it, it's a tough sell. So a lot of times microphones are made a little bit more balanced because they want them to sound good on lots of different things. But to me, that's kind of silly because it's like, well, why? <laughs> you know, why, why does a mic have to be versatile? You know what I mean? Like I would much rather a guitar pedal or a microphone or a snare drum or whatever sound really amazing at one or two things and sound kind of mediocre on other things than just get something that sounds okay on a lot of things. No, I would rather have something that really nails it on piano, for example, like a microphone that really sounds amazing on piano, but is too bright for vocal or acoustic. Because then at least I would know, like, oh, this mic sounds amazing on piano. That's what I use it on. But, you know, uh, <laughs> it's I understand. I understand. It's a, It'd be a hard sell. But, yeah. So, number two, I think I have to mention it as a Recording Lounge episode. People have monitoring issues, 
right? And a lot of times they're listening on systems that are already too bright or their systems lack low end because there's tons of peaks and nulls and their response. And, uh, and there's a big trend that has happened over the years. Part of it's just marketing BS, but like these companies have marketed like four and five inch studio monitors that just don't have low end. They say like, oh, professional studio monitor. And it's like, no, they're not. I'm sorry, but they're not. Like, stop marketing them as professional studio monitors with full frequency response. They don't have it. Like, I've treated rooms with these little five-inch, you know, Atom speakers or Yamaha speakers or whatever, and it's like, they start rolling off at 70 hertz. It's like, are you kidding me? Like, <laughs> my kick drum might be at 50. Like, uh, that that's not full frequency. Like, you have to have a sub with those. It's it's really frustrating, to be honest, because I hate when companies try to market something as, you know, a professional piece of gear and people buy it because it's affordable and then they get terrible results doing what they're trying to do. And it's like, yes, because you were lied to, because you were told this is a full frequency speaker. You were told it goes 20 to 20 K when it really doesn't, because at 20 hertz, it's minus 40. They lied to you. You know what I mean? It's one of the things that I see it a lot. A lot of home studios, the monitors they're using are too small. They just can't produce 20, 30, 40, 50 hertz. Um, you really need like six and a half inch driver minimum, but more like seven or eight. Now, some speakers are really good at this and maybe they'll use two six and a half inch drivers or they'll use two sixes or they'll use a six inch driver and maybe a passive radiator or maybe a port system that's really creative, sometimes you can get down to 40, 50 hertz, but to really get that bottom like octave and a half, like from 20 to 60, to do that really well, I mean, there are physical limits to, to what you can do with a four, five, six inch speaker. Like sometimes you're just going to have to have a seven, eight or 10 inch speaker, or at least like dual eights in a cabinet, right? Or dual sevens or dual tens to really get down that low clearly and cleanly and accurately. You really have to make sure and look at the frequency response of the monitors that you're looking at. If it's not published, don't buy them. I know that sounds harsh, but to me, it's dishonest for these companies to not publish those things. We as consumers and as professionals deserve to know what the frequency response of the gear is that we're about to buy, especially when they're telling us it's professional, when they're telling us like, and when I say the frequency response, I don't mean a, you know, little text box that says 20 hertz to 20 kilohertz. That's not a frequency response. That's a range that is potentially produced. You need to be able to see a graph. Okay, and note where it starts to roll off. Note how it's labeled. Very carefully note how smooth it is and realize that even those are kind of flawed. As we talked about in our microphone episode, a lot of those are smooth to one third octave resolution or sometimes even lower. So they look razor flat, but they're not. Okay, so be very cautious of that. My whole point in bringing this up is that so many times it feels counterintuitive simply because people do not have good monitoring in their studios. And so it sounds like, well, my mix is already thin or my mix is already bright or my mix is already whatever. I, I, sh I shouldn't have to add anymore. And then they check it in the car. And of course, their mix is dull and dark and whatever. And it's like if you're noticing that happening, then you really need to take care of your monitoring. I'll say it every day until the day I die. Your monitoring is one of the most important things in your entire career. 
I mean, if you're doing any audio professionally, even seriously as a hobbyist, you're monitoring, you're monitoring, you're monitoring your room, your monitors, your acoustic treatment, your listening placement, your speaker placement. It is so critical. If there was one misunderstood thing, one ignored thing, one thing that I get more emails about, more questions about, and more people emailing me years later to say, you were right, I finally treated my room, what was I doing for the last five years? It's monitoring, okay? It's, it's that important. So on the topic of monitoring, the next one is when people monitor things too loud while recording. Okay, this is not exactly a flaw with their system, but it's a, it's a bad habit that happens. Many times I find that, myself included, you know, we'll monitor really loud while tracking because it's fun. We have people in the room, you know, and remember when I talked about brightness will make things sound louder. Well, the same is true the opposite way. When you turn things up louder, they sound brighter. Again, that's the Fletcher-Munson curve. That's how our ears work. So when we monitor loudly, too loudly, things sound brighter and clearer than they really are. And realistically, people won't be listening to music as loud as we're monitoring, and we're not going to be mixing as loud as we're monitoring, right? So when they turn down, when we turn our mixes down, or when the listener turns it down, you're going to realize, oh, that's way darker than I thought it was. So in a way, people like we want to try to feel the implied energy uh, without having to expend a bunch of acoustic energy, right? Like we don't want to have to crank up our systems to have to hear the clarity and the highs. And that's one of the reasons why this trend, I think, has developed, right? Like we want things to sound louder than they really are for so many reasons. But one of those reasons is because it's more efficient. So number four is hearing things as if they were quiet. Now, this one is hard to talk about. I didn't even really have a good title for this one because I don't even know exactly how to describe it, but I'm going to try. So many times while mixing, it's helpful to mix quietly to get a handle on balances and mid-range and things like that. I've advocated for this for years on the podcast, and many professionals in the industry say the same thing. It's not a novel idea. This, however, presents an unforeseen side effect. When we're listening to things quietly, a lot of times our brain is saying, yes, that sounds good for a quiet thing. So it's like as if our brain is trying to hear something and it's compensating knowing that that thing is turned down. I know it's hard to describe, but I hope you understand what I mean. It's like we're trying to make our mixes sound louder than they really are. Again, that implied energy. So we almost have to counterintuitively make things sound loud while they are quiet. And that feels wrong. You might turn down a, a mix and you're listening to it and you're like, oh, well, that sounds good. But like, I can tell my mix is turned down quietly. But that's not really what we have to do. Jack Joseph Puig in an interview has said, you know, if you can make something sound banging and loud when you're listening quiet, you know you're close to being done. So what that means is, like, if you want things to have apparent loudness, then you have to make them sound loud at a quiet listening level. And that applies to how we mix. It's not like the final product. It's like while we're mixing, if we're mixing quietly, it should still have apparent loudness and excitement and have all that richness and apparent aggression at a low level. It shouldn't sound like weak and wimpy at a quiet level. And that's a really tricky thing. And the last reason is trying to do it all at once. So what I mean by that is like, 
as we'll talk about in the next section, I feel like people try to add all their top end in one shot. And so it feels counterintuitive, right? They'll, they'll look at their EQ and be like, I'm adding plus 15. And they'll think, oh, that's so much. But in reality, it's not unheard of to add 12 dB of top end to something. But it's not that it happens in a single stage, but in multiple stages, right? So if you use a microphone that's 2 dB brighter than a different microphone, and maybe you add 2 dB on your mic preamp, and you add 2 dB on your console channel, maybe you add 2 dB on your uh, mix channel and on your drum bus, and then maybe on your master bus, that's 12 dB. So like, it's very easy for that EQ to add up over multiple stages, but trying to do it all in one shot is going to feel pretty counterintuitive. So a lot of times people, especially today, that are recording without analog EQ, they're not, you know, adding compression or EQ on the way in, they're not adding saturation on the way in, they're not doing all that stuff, they're recording totally dry, it's going to feel a little bit counterintuitive if you have to crank 15 dB of top end on something, okay? I, I don't really have a solution for you other than maybe try to take it in stages, you know, maybe put a little bit of top end on your master bus, put a little bit of top end on your drum bus, put a little bit of top end on your channel, and then maybe try to add a little bit on the way in so that at least from a workflow perspective, it doesn't feel like there's this resistance in your mind to doing it, right? Like you're not sitting there saying like, oh, I, I shouldn't do that. You know, try to do whatever it takes to allow yourself to make those decisions. Again, don't be afraid of doing really absurd looking EQ moves. It's all about how it sounds. If you have to add 10 dB to something, then do it. If you have to cut 20 dB from something, then do it. Like, but you really have to learn to trust yourself and not be afraid of those types of moves. So now the last section of the podcast, we're going to talk about how to get good top end in your productions. First things first, I do believe that this is a sum of all parts sort of situation, right? Just like we talked about just on this last point, don't try and don't expect to get all of your top end in one shot, okay? It generally is going to come from multiple pieces in the chain. And there are times when you need to crank up an EQ, yes, and there are times when you need to record a super bright piano or guitar sound, but ultimately, try to think of it as small gains at each link in the chain. So, step one to getting good top end in your productions, the source is king, right? Something I say all the time on the podcast it starts with sources that have good, clear top end. So if your snare drum is dull or muddy or the drum head is old or the bearing edge is totally flat and, you know, it's not, it doesn't have any clarity, it's going to be hard to get it brighter, right? If your guitar strings are a million years old, if your snare drum is old, if your guitar speakers are dull and worn out, if your room is super dampened, uh, you know, far too much with high-frequency treatment, if your keyboard is dull, if your bass tone knob is rolled off, chances are you will not have enough top end to work with, okay? I would much rather have more top end than I need that I can filter than to not have it, right? That's one of the reasons I'm super against, uh, you know, bass players rolling their tone all the way off. You know, at least give me some, at least give me a little. Like, I, I say I'm against it because, you know, the tone knob on a guitar is a filter. Like, it's gone. It's not a shelf, right? It's not that it's turned down. Like, it is gone. Like, I cannot bring it back. I would have to crank hundreds of dB to bring it back effectively. Um, so I, I'm generally very against that. Like, if a bass player wants a darker tone, I will, you know, run through an EQ, a shelf, and send them that and record a dry version. 
Like, let me remove that top end for a darker tone. Don't do it on the base or it's gone forever, okay? Now, getting back to the matter at hand, um, another thing we've talked about on the podcast before is about guitar strings and, you know, keeping relatively new guitar strings. And I want to be clear, like, we've talked about the idea that, like, brightness and harmonic content are not always the same thing. And I understand that like brand new guitar strings, and I used to not think this, but I, I definitely believe this now, like brand new guitar strings are not always the answer. Okay. Sometimes they are, but like brand new, fresh out of the pack guitar strings can be a little bit harsh and zingy and too rich in the high mids. However, good quality strings with certain types of metal, you know, whether it's phosphor bronze or brass or 8020 or whatever it is, certain types, certain brands, certain models will still remain clear and articulate and bright even after they've broken in. So you have to experiment with that on your particular guitars and find those quality strings that maintain clarity and don't just like immediately die and get dull and muddy and terrible. Right. Um, it, it's a concept that I think a lot of people have lost, which is the idea that like clarity isn't just top end. OK, clarity can happen in the mids and it can happen in the lows. Right. Uh, and you have to train your ear to listen for that as well. Not just brightness. OK, brightness, top end, harmonic richness, clarity, like those are all kind of separate things. And you need to understand what they all are. Uh, now, similarly, I, I do find, uh, I wanted to touch on this real quick. I do find a lot of home studios are making their rooms too dead so that everything in there, uh, just sounds dull and lifeless. Um, this is one of the things that happens when you're recording in a room that's fully carpeted and then you put up additional treatment. You know, one of the most frustrating parts about treating a small room is that generally you need a lot of treatment to sound good, but that's mostly because of the poor low end response. So, You'll have to add a lot of treatment, but then it'll dull out the room a ton. You know, it's it's very easy to absorb a top end, right? Like, it's much harder to absorb low end. So what people really need to do is think more of using targeted traps like the GIK Monster Trap with the Flex Range technology, which is essentially a range-limited uh, reflective face that will reflect frequencies above, you know, X, whatever it is. Uh, so maybe above 400 hertz or something will mostly reflect, but then it'll absorb below that. So it will tame all that low end. It's a big trap. It will tame all that low end, but not kill all of your top end as drastically. Um, there are also like hybrid surface panels and like binary surface panels that have diffusive faces that will, again, uh, reflect and diffuse some top end rather than just absorbing all of it. And then the low end will pass right through. So I recommend looking into these types of things like the GIK Alpha series. Um, this isn't a sponsored post. I, I don't make any money from saying this from GIK. I, I, I use GIK products. I love them. I recommend them all the time. They work. Okay. Um, so these types of traps are really smart for, uh, for studios, especially for tracking rooms, especially for smaller rooms. Um, another great one to check out is the Real Traps Mega Traps which are designed as like corner traps. They're some of the most effective traps on the market. Uh, and they have a reflective sort of membrane face that will reflect certain frequencies and uh, improve the absorption at low frequencies uh, while not totally killing the top end. So in summary, the, the first point of this entire rant here is like the source is always king. Okay, I've said it a million times. I'll say it again. Your, your instruments, your strings, your room, like all of that stuff is the most important thing to consider first. 
And you need to be able to get good clarity and brightness out of those things. Going back to what we talked about earlier, a lot of people wrongfully assume that like the holy grail instruments like an old P-Bass or an old Telecaster is, quote, dark and warm. And it's just not really true. A lot of what you're recognizing or hearing in your mind is a recording of those old instruments. And you don't really know why that's darker exactly. Maybe they used a ribbon mic on it. Maybe they mic'd it from 10 feet away and pointed the mic to the other side. Maybe it didn't even have a mic on it and it was just being picked up by room mics. Maybe in your mind you're having this sense memory of hearing it on vinyl. Maybe it was recorded to early, early tape machines that had like terrible top end. There's so many other factors than the instrument itself was dark and dull and warm. Like you need to understand that so many of those old records, especially before the 70s, they weren't trying to like go for that vibe. That was like high quality recording at the time. You know what I mean? Like they weren't trying to go for like lo-fi retro Motown sound. That was like high def stuff at the time. And today people look back at that and they're like, oh yeah, let's try to go for that vibe. And it's like, <laughs> okay, but realize that they were using like brand new instruments a lot of the times in the 50s and 60s, like they were using 50s and 60s guitars. They weren't using like 1800s lutes and stuff. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> like they were using brand new instruments at the time, high quality microphones, high quality consoles, high quality tape machines. Like they were using top of the line stuff. And so... Fast forward to today, when we use our top, top of the line stuff, it's a different experience, right? So don't assume that that stuff is from the source. A lot of times it, come, it came from the recording techniques, the recording technology, the playback technology, all of that stuff. So what I'm getting at is the source usually is probably brighter than you think. You know, the guitar, the amp, the cymbals, like... That stuff is not necessarily where people are getting their darkness or whatever. So don't think about, uh, don't, don't sleep on the brightness of the source, right? Like a good old Telecaster is really bright. It's a bright thing. A good old basement is really bright. So don't naturally reach for that and be like, oh, it's too bright. Like you, you probably need that top end. You know what I mean? Like you're probably going to need it later in the mix. So again, the source is king. Make sure to check out your sources, your room, and focus on that stuff. Make sure you're getting good quality top end right at the source. Number two, using high quality microphones. Okay, there are a lot of microphones on the market that upon initial listening tests sound nice and bright, but they end up kind of harsh sounding in the mix and a lot of times don't even work in the mix. Truth be told, I suspect many of them are using filters inside to boost top end rather than a good quality, nice capsule that actually naturally captures that top end. Some of the biggest differences that I find between a cheaper microphone and a high quality, really nice microphone, you can often hear it in the clarity of the mic. And again, it's not necessarily that the nicer microphone is brighter, it's more clear. It sounds bright, brighter. It's like it has apparent brightness or something because, again, you can have a sound that is bright but unclear or bright but harsh. Again, like harmonic content and distortion and all that stuff, like that is not necessarily the same thing as brightness. So invest in high-quality microphones that have clarity and detail. Listen for it in the mid-range. Listen for it in the highs. And when you're testing out a new microphone, 
see how it responds to EQ boosts, okay? Record something into the DAW and crank up the top end like 10 dB and see what reveals itself. Sometimes you'll find that a microphone is way harsher than you realized because boosting the top end reveals that stuff that you didn't hear before. You know, there are companies out there who just have better capsule quality and clearer top end in general. In my opinion, like Sheps and DPA and Sound Deluxe come to mind. These companies just have amazing, amazing quality in their microphones and the clarity, whether the microphone is dark or bright, depending on the model, the clarity in these microphones is really stunning. And I think they just really know what they're doing. Also, Josephson and Sankin make a really fantastic microphone. These companies really just are standout companies to me. Uh, tons of detail and clarity in their microphones. It's not some circuit trickery that's going on. It's just quality craftsmanship and good materials, and really good attention to detail. Number three is utilize analog EQ wherever possible. I mean, I love plugins. I think they sound amazing. I use them all the time, but I still love and utilize analog EQ on the way in. One of the things I think analog EQ really excels at is the top end. And it's not that the curve is way different than any plugin out there. It's something about the amplification of high frequencies in the analog domain. It kind of adds this like 3D shimmer on things that plugins don't quite capture just yet. I do think they're close. I do think they're really close. And I think they will get there for sure. Like the top end that you can get from like the Universal Audio Pultex and the Universal Audio Tape plugins, like the, you know, Ampex tape, it's pretty impressive. You know, it really is. But I do still love my analog EQs and I use them. I use them on the way in. Now, in general, I find one of the ways to add a lot of a certain frequency region without it sounding like you're doing a ton of EQ is to make your Q or bandwidth really wide. And that's something that I think a lot of people don't realize about analog EQs is that most of them, the classic ones, especially Neves and APIs and Poltex, they have really wide bandwidths. So when your EQ says uh, it's boosting 5K or whatever, it's like it might be boosting like 1 to 10K, right? Like it could be super, super wide, okay? Some of these old Neve EQs, the Q on those is like 0.4, okay? Like try that on FabFilter or some digital EQ plugin that you have. Like that's really wide. <laughs> it's really wide, okay? So what's nice about that is you're listening for like a tonal shaping thing and it won't feel like you have to add as much because you're adding such a wide bandwidth. And it's almost like you're painting with this super wide brush. But that to me is kind of one of the forgotten secrets of the analog EQ world. Use wide cues. That's one of the reasons that they sound so smooth. So in the box, I highly recommend checking out good Poltec style plugins. Poltec plugins to me are kind of the king of adding top end. They have some of the smoothest, clearest, most pleasant top end of any EQ out there. You know, a lot of people, when they first start and they see the Poltec thing, they're like, I don't get it. Why, why would I use that? Well, that's one of the reasons why. So Poltec is just so good at adding top end. Uh, the UAD Poltecs are really fantastic. For the most part, I do use FabFilter Pro Q3 a lot for a lot of EQ duties. It sounds pretty good, but... If I'm using an analog style plugin on for EQ, it's probably going to be like the Universal Audio 1073s, the Universal Audio Poltex, 
the Brainworks SSL style plugins. I mean, there's a handful, but man, the UAD Pultex are pretty impressive. And I've got some real like Pultex style EQs from Retro. And I got to say, like the UAD Pultex hold up. I mean, it's not quite the same sound, but man, it's really close. And I enjoy both a lot. Now, the Pultec is also really fabulous at adding low-end as well, uh, but that's for another show. Number four is to utilize saturation. Now, when I started this section, I said, how are we going to add brightness without harshness? And some of you might be thinking, like, uh, saturation seems like harshness. And I swear, this is the last time I'll say it, but I, I have to say it for this section. Again, harmonic richness and brightness are not the same thing, Okay. Saturation is going to add harmonic content above the frequencies that go into it. So if you have a 100 hertz sine wave going into a saturation plugin, you're going to get some harmonics at 200, 300, 400, 500, etc. Right? Frequency times 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, and so on. That's how the harmonic series works. That's how saturation devices work. You know, they each have different sort of structures to how they add. Maybe they add more third harmonic. Maybe they add more second or fourth or whatever. Um, so just by nature, saturation devices are adding harmonic content above what you're putting into it. And generally what we put into it will have thousands and thousands of frequencies throughout the mids and high mids, which then get shifted upward as harmonic content. So like to the ear, that can sound like brightness or sparkle or clarity. And when pushed really far, yes, it will sound like distortion. But Saturation in most situations that we're dealing with in mixes is not always just about distortion or clipping or, you know, adding like crazy fuzz or whatever. It's much more than that. It's, it's really like a part of the entire workflow that we have to understand. I've had a lot of episodes about this. We've talked about like the transient life cycle. You know, remember in the analog domain, all these pieces of gear were adding some sort of little bit of saturation, even if it was super subtle. And so if a big-name mixer is working on a project that was recorded with analog gear into analog tape and then mixing on an analog console through analog gear back to analog tape, you can bet all those stages are adding up and they're adding saturation over time. Because if you saturate a sound and then run into another piece of gear that saturates and then into another piece of gear that saturates, by the end of the chain, you could have saturated five, six, seven, eight times. And every time you saturate, you're adding frequencies above the frequencies you had before. So you're saturating upon saturation. So like, I know I'm getting pretty geeky here, but like, I want to try to illustrate this as best I can. So like, let's say you're recording a guitar and most electric guitars tend to live between like 100 hertz and 5K. Like that's kind of the bulk of the guitar sound, right? And if you saturate the preamp a little bit, you're going to be adding harmonic content above that region. So you're going to be adding content between 200 and 10K. The harmonics are above. Then if you go into another stage and you saturate again, you're going to be adding more 210K, but you're also going to be adding 400 to 20K because the new frequencies that you added are also getting saturated. Then in the next stage, you'll be boosting more, you know, 800 to 40K. You see how this adds upon each other, right? You know, with enough stages, it's inevitable that you're going to be adding quite a bit of upper harmonic content. Right. And so by the nature of the process, like you're you're going to be adding higher frequencies to your sound. So for all of those out there that say analog gear is warm, I mean, <laughs> I say prove it. Right. Like I think vinyl is warm. I think old tape machines that we don't use anymore were warm. I think a lot of the old technology, I think ribbon mics are warm. But like for the most part, like Neves, Neves are not warm. 
Neves are pretty aggressive, right? Like there's a lot of gear that's like the holy grail gear and it's not warm. Anyway, my point is this. Saturation is one way to add some upper harmonic content, which enhances some clarity, richness, adds some zing. And the way that Eric Valentine describes it, and I really like how he says this, is it kind of spreads out the harmonics, which makes things sort of less noticeable and pokey because like you're adding sort of complexity to the high end and that makes things poke out less, right? Like it's, if you're listening to a single frequency, like 1K, uh, it sounds like, you know, you know, like a 1K tone. But if you had, you know, an acoustic guitar track, it probably has 1K as well, but there's also thousands of other frequencies and it doesn't sound like one discernible frequency. Like it sounds like a guitar, right? So it's kind of like harmonics can spread out a tone and make it sound less harsh, less like singular and pointy. And that can happen on sounds as well. Like on a snare drum, for example, sometimes the top end of a snare drum can start to get a little papery and harsh. And if you get a little bit of saturation going, it's almost like it smooths that over because it's adding some frequencies above. It's adding a little bit of like 10K. And if you're pushing quite a bit of 100 hertz or 150 or 200 or whatever low end is going on on that snare drum, you're going to get some more mid-range thickness and some more crack in the 1K, 2K, 3K region. So that harsh like 4, 5K that maybe you had before doesn't seem as noticeable. Like it's still there, but it doesn't seem as noticeable because you've added this other harmonic content. So that's kind of how Eric Valentine describes it. It's like spreading out the frequencies. So it makes it brighter, but less harsh simultaneously. So anyway, adding saturation is a means to get some sparkle, some grit, some sizzle, and some richness up in the top end. And it's a very common part of the process that you just have to accept has been a part of the process for decades upon decades. So number five, de-essing and de-harshing. Uh, in my opinion, these are two very similar types of processors, uh, de-essers and what I like to call de-harshers. Uh, de-essers, you probably know, these are basically just frequency-selective compressors that will dip down high frequencies when they cross the threshold. Uh, so you can set them low enough to affect high mids usually, but most of the time they're, you know, from like 2K and above. De-harshing plugins, though, uh, that's like a category that I'm putting plugins like Soothe or Brainworks Refinement. These types of plugins are aiming to reduce harsh resonances or smeared upper mids. And I love these types of plugins. Um, you know, I've said it before on the show, I'll say it again, like Soothe alone has saved me hours of frustration and work. It can really make sounds like less harsh, less resonant. And yes, you can go too far with it. You can like kill all the life of a sound, but man, for just a touch of it, it can really be a lifesaver. So you might be asking yourself, like, if these plugins remove high frequency harshness, how is that supposed to make my sound brighter? Well, that's just it. Like, this is one of the most important things I can teach you in this episode, which is that I think one of the reasons people are afraid to add top end or they feel like a sound is already too bright or too loud or whatever is because they're actually hearing the harshness in a sound and their brain is like fighting back. It's saying like, oh, it's already so bright. You can't add any more. It'll get too harsh because it's already harsh. But that's not the solution, right? The solution is to remove the harshness and then that will allow you to add more brightness. Okay, a lot of times what happens is like on electric guitars, especially cleaner electric guitars or chimey like Vox electric guitars, you're going to be hearing like harsh stuff at like two, three, and 4K. But 
it's also dark at the same time. So what you actually need to do is reduce some of that pokey, you know, some of those harsh resonances at 2, 3, and 4K, and then you can brighten up the whole thing, and it doesn't seem as drastic. So in order to make those sounds brighter, you have to remove the harshness first. So put another way, if your sounds are not harsh, you should be able to add lots of top into them before it starts to hurt your ears. But if you start adding, especially with really wide cues, like a Pultec or a Neve or something, like if you start adding top in and it's like, oh, it's so harsh, don't blame the plugin. Okay, it's probably that your source is a little bit harsh or maybe your microphone or whatever it may be. Uh, and so you need to pull back some of that 2K, 3K, 4K, somewhere around there is usually going to be some harsh resonances and stuff that you can dip uh, while adding top in simultaneously. Number six, avoid low and low mid buildup. Now, this one might seem counterintuitive again, but in many cases, the lack of brightness that you're hearing is actually not that the sound is not bright enough. It's that it has too much low end or low mids. And this will muddy up the sound and make it sound dark to our ears because by contrast, you know, it's going to sound fat and dull and dark, but really the correct answer is that it's too fat and too muddy. So put simply, you need to learn to identify, is this sound dark or is it too fat? Because those things are different, right? Sometimes it's just that it's too fat. I talked about this a little bit more on episode 82, which is uh, called Why So Much Low End. But, you know, we'll talk about that a little bit more on more episodes. A, a really important thing to note about this, okay? Adding brightness is not a cure for something being too fat. Because think about it. Like, if your sound is too fat and you add top end, what you've actually created is a scooped sound, right? Because it's too fat and you've added top end to compensate. So you've added this scoop, the mids, by comparison, have been dipped. And this is one of the biggest problems that I hear in a lot of like home studio mixes or like amateur mixes is it sounds like everything's really scooped, right? It's real boomy and it's real harsh. And they have this smiley face curve going on. And people will be like, well, I'm not doing a smiley face curve. And it's like, well, you kind of are because your sound is boomy and you're adding top end to try to fix it. So effectively, you did a smiley face. Now, if you were to cut low end, and maybe add a little bit of top end, that's a totally different curve now. Now it's more like the sort of stepped, you know, three steps, right? Where, where you're cutting some low end, your mids are flat, and then you've added a little bit of top end. That's a totally different curve than a smiley face, right? It's a totally different thing. So remember, boosting top end is not the fix for an overly fat or muddy sound. Really try to identify what it is that you're hearing. And again, you can only really do that if you can trust your monitoring. You can really hear, oh, it's too fat, it's too muddy. Or it's too dark, it needs to be brightened up. Because those are different. That's probably the most important lesson of the day. Number seven, utilize reference tracks. You know, going back to the Dave Pensato quote I mentioned earlier, that you can kind of pinpoint an era or a year that a song was mixed based on the top end. You know, it's always really helpful to compare your mix to a reference. Talked about this on the show before. It's something that I regularly do. Uh, I ask the band for it. You know, uh, I ask the band for reference tracks. And if they haven't given me one, I will ask again. Uh, because you want to make sure that you have some sort of definitive or definable goal for, like, how bright should this mix be? 
because of art. You know what I mean? Like, like what's the artisticness of the top end on this? Is it supposed to be bright or is it supposed to be like artistically dark? You know what I mean? The top end can have a profound effect on like the trendiness of a record and how it's perceived by the listener. You know, something like Kings of Leon, like those are a little bit darker mixes generally, especially the early stuff. Like, that's a cool rock band, but it's very different than, say, like Foo Fighters mixes, which are generally quite a bit brighter. You know, some clients want stuff super bright. Some clients want stuff super dark. Uh, I did a mix for a client and the reference track was so fat and so dark. I almost had to be like, man, I don't know if I can like do this. Like my brain will not let me do this because of how I mean, it was like I was cutting top end on every track and boosting low end on every track. I mean, it was absurd how dark and dull the reference was, but that's what they wanted. Right. It was it sounded bad to me, but I mean, that's what the client wanted. So it's really important to understand what the client has in their mind, like what their ideal top end is for their song. And one thing I really should clarify about this, ideally you want to bring in references early in the process, right? Because the source is king, you know, you should be listening to reference tracks early in the production process so that when you re when you, if you're listening to a reference track and you're thinking, "Oh, they want a pretty bright modern sound." You need to produce the song that way, right? Choose the brighter guitar, the brighter mic, the brighter mic position, use the brighter mic preamp, right? Like do that on the way in because you're going to have to do it later. And the closer you can get to it on the way in, the better. You won't have to do as much in the mix. You know, you're just going to produce it the way that you intend to hear it, right? Don't save all that stuff to the mix. Now, if they're purposely wanting a darker sound, then realize that you can produce it a little darker. You can use that ribbon mic. You can mic off center. You can get away with that, but don't just produce it darkly if they're wanting it really bright, you know, because then you're really going to be in trouble in the mix. You're going to have to add tons of top end to tracks and don't just try to produce things flat so that you can go one way or the other, right? Like, don't do that. You know, intentionally think about this stuff. Intentionally think about, all right, this is a pop song. They're going to want a real bright vocal. They're going to want, you know, a real bright spanky guitar. And that guitar needs to be kind of thin because it's not super important. The synth is more important. And I know they're going to want a big fat kick drum. Like, you can think about this stuff in the context of the mix and then produce it that way from day one, right? Think about it that way from day one. Number eight, utilize contrast, okay? This is something I still struggle with and something that uh, I have tried for years to get better at, and it's still really difficult for me. But if everything is bright, then nothing will really stand out as bright. It's so easy to get in the habit of trying to make everything crystal clear and bright and in your face, and, like, sometimes that's fine. Sometimes that's what works. Like, for certain types of pop or, like, real modern stuff, that's exactly what you need to do. But if everything is just as bright as everything else, then you miss out on, like, depth and contrast and uniqueness. Everything's just kind of hitting you the same. And it can get really fatiguing and, frankly, it's just kind of boring. So, like, I'm always trying to come up with things that can be a little darker. Maybe maybe the snare drum sits a little bit back in the mix and the vocal's a little more forward. Or maybe the bass is kind of bright. Or maybe the bass is super dark. Or whatever it may be. Like, I'm trying to create layers of contrast and layers of sort of front-to-back depth. 
You know, try finding the top end where it matters most. Try finding the top end where it sounds the nicest, right? Like if there's a piano that just sounds really killer when it's nice and bright, then get the top end from that. And maybe there's a guitar sound that's like, eh, that starts to get a little bit harsh when I brighten it up. Maybe I'll let the piano be the bright thing and the guitar I'll mix a little bit darker. Like exploit the natural strengths of those tracks, right? Let it shine. Like if you've got a track that sounds amazing when bright, then let it be bright. And if you've got a track that suffers, maybe make that a little bit darker, right? Don't just try to unnecessarily add top end to everything, trying to get everything brighter. Like make sure you leave some contrast in there, right? Think about who is winning the brightness war within your mix? Where should the brightness be coming from? What mics should it be coming from on your drums? Like, maybe you should keep your close hi-hat mic a little darker, but make your overheads brighter or vice versa, okay? That's something that I deal with a lot. It's like, are my overheads too bright? How does it compare to my close mics? How do they blend? Should I be using darker overheads, brighter overheads? That's a that's a battle that I face a lot when recording, whether it's rock or pop or whatever. Is I'm I'm always trying to balance like the source sounds, you know, the brightness of the kit itself versus the microphones I'm using versus the blend that needs to make sense for the style, for the mix, and so on. And number nine is to take it in stages. So we're kind of circling back to my preface, which is that you kind of have to view this as the sum of all parts. If you get a little bit of top end by using a slightly brighter guitar, maybe a slightly brighter cabinet, slightly brighter amp, maybe a slightly brighter mic position, a slightly brighter preamp with a little bit of saturation, maybe you add a dB or two of EQ on the way in, and maybe there's like a dB or two of EQ on your master bus, you will get a brighter result. And it won't feel like you're adding a lot. Even though you technically kind of are, you've done it in stages, right? There's a time and a place for bright stuff. And the better you understand what the end result needs to be, the more you can kind of have the foresight to brighten that mic and brighten that guitar and use a little bit of EQ and, and do it in stages, not trying to tackle it all in one go. It also will probably sound a little bit more special and unique that you did it in different stages because it's not going to be identical EQ curves in every stage. You're going to get kind of a unique result at the end of it, right? And you can fine-tune it as you go rather than like, well, I cranked a bunch of top end and now I can't undo it. So try not to tackle it all in one go. Try to train your ears to hear in stages, does it need more top end? Does it need less low end? Does it need a little of both? And always try to have clear goals in mind about what you're trying to achieve. And hopefully with all of these tips, you can understand top end a little bit better. And now you have better ideas about how we can achieve it without harshness and to make mixes that compete in this brightness war. So I hope this episode was informative. I hope it gave you a lot of things to consider about brightness and top end and how can we get more of it without being harsh and why is it so bright and why are mixes the way that they are? It's a little bit of a complicated topic, but it's something I've actually had a couple of requests for because people will send me mixes and I'll say like, it's not bright enough. Or they'll be like, my mixes are so dark compared to commercial mixes. Like why, <laughs> you know, and it does feel counterintuitive. It's one of the reasons I wanted to make this episode is a lot of times it feels like, man, I shouldn't have to do that. Should I? And I've struggled with it for years. Okay. I've been there. I understand the frustration of like, why did I have to add 10 dB of top end to that guitar? But as you investigate, you'll realize, oh, well, I was using a ribbon mic and mm, I, I guess I was using kind of a darker speaker and I guess I did have the bright switch off on the amp and I was using, you know, a P90 pickup and 
I wasn't adding any EQ on the way in. And you start to realize where you have actually removed top end out of habit because it sounds a little bit better to you in the moment, but you realize, oh, this isn't going to fit in the mix. And so if you make tiny little adjustments at each stage, use a brighter speaker, use a brighter amp setting, use a brighter pickup, you know, and then eventually it's like, oh, I didn't have to add much top end at all. Maybe a dB and I'm done. So there's so many little factors that go into it. And there's so many other factors that go into why things need to be brighter and thinner, especially in terms of like fitting everything into a mix. And I hope this gave you some insight into sort of as many aspects as I could cram into this episode that would talk about brightness and why we're in this sort of brightness war that we're in. Now, I will say, I don't think it's a war that will really change or, or you know, go away. I think it's something that we'll always face because it's become part of the sound of modern music. It's something we just have to learn how to do well. And it's something that, you know, for certain projects, we might just completely ignore because we want it to sound dark. And for other projects, we have to really overextend ourselves and make sure it's super bright because that's the sound the client wants. Anyway, if you have questions, comments, show suggestions, send me an email, recordingloungepodcast at gmail.com. If you're interested in becoming a Patreon supporter, check out patreon.com slash recordinglounge where you can get exclusive quick tip episodes for becoming a supporter. You can really help out the podcast by doing this. Thanks to all of my Patreon supporters. It's really helping keep the podcast alive. And make sure to check out our YouTube channel, youtube.com slash recording lounge. And for everything else, our website, recordingloungepodcast.com. I'll talk to you next time. See ya.